Mythology, a new podcast celebrating the culture and history of the island of Ibiza. I'm Bill Beecham, an Ibiza-based journalist, and in each podcast I will interview Ibithans who are contributing in some way to the life and culture of this diverse island. I know one thing, I never offered a painting or a drawing to a museum who didn't buy it. That never refused one, never. These are the words of Elmer de Hori, perhaps the 20th century's greatest art forger, who lived in Ibiza from 1961 until his suicide in 1976. Uncovering the truth about Elmer is difficult. As I have found, the more you dig into his history, the more impenetrable it becomes. There are some people who even cast doubt on his history as a great forger of art and claim he deceived the world even about that. Elmir could certainly paint and draw, as he demonstrates in the 1970 BBC documentary by François Reichenbach, from which the clips you are hearing are drawn. Elmir was born in Budapest in 1906 and studied art in Hungary, Germany and France. Being Jewish and gay made life difficult for Elmir and he spent time in prison as well as in a German concentration camp. After the war, he moved to Paris but found it tough to make a living as an artist, as he describes here. Arriving to Paris, you know, after the war, I tried to work, I did work, I did paint, I did try to establish myself with a hope of, of, of a, even of not big success, but enough to make a, a, a living, if not an elegant living, but a living, something to, to enough to have to eat and... Uh, once in a while I can buy myself a suit or I can go to a good restaurant or so forth. But I wasn't able. So when the first time I saw with that easiness a drawing what took me exactly five minutes to make, you know, and it, it assured my living for the next month or two months, you know, I would like to see that poor Hungarian refugee who would have resisted of that. Elmir peddled a story about being an aristocratic Hungarian displaced by the war, who had fallen on hard times and was forced to sell what remained of his family's art collection to make ends meet. As well as Paris, Elmir lived in Scandinavia, Brazil, plus 12 years in the United States, where suspicions about his forgeries meant he had to move frequently, operating under several aliases. In 1961, Elmir, seeking a quieter life, moved to Ibiza, where he became something of a local celebrity. He loved life here and held fantastic parties at his villa, La Falaise, up in Puige des Molines. Here is Elmir describing the scene centred around the Montessol Hotel on Varadere. That is Montessol. It is the place where people come by between 10 and 12. They read their paper, they read other people's letters, they tell who slept with whom that night and how it happened. 
and uh, all the everybody minds everybody else's business very intensely. <laughs> Mark Forgey travelled to Ibiza in 1969 as a young man, and a chance encounter with Elmer led to him becoming his assistant and companion until his death in 1976. Mark inherited his estate, which includes a large number of Elmir's pictures. Elmir's magnetic personality made a huge and lasting impression on Mark, as you'll hear during our interview. Let's join Mark as he talks first about the documentary you've been listening to in the introduction and the Orson Welles documentary, F for Fake. I consider that uh, that film uh, my home movie. Oh, wow, really? Yes. I, I, I think, is that you appearing in the film? Uh, yeah, yes, I, I, I do. I, I, I do appear in the film. Somewhat less uh, surreptitiously as I'd, I'd intended, but I, I, I seem to be creeping in the, in the background uh, there. My presence is, is more like uh, shadowing him <laughs> in some way. As a matter of fact, apropos of that, Wells, uh, originally, before he made uh, F for Fake, had seen uh, the uh, Reichenbach, uh, Richard Druitt, BBC film. And, and it was that documentary that really in, inspired Wells to, to do uh, F for Fake. And he actually borrowed a lot of the film footage from that, that documentary that was made by uh, Reichenbach and the, and the BBC. In consequence of that, uh, of my lurking in the uh, background, there's a funny story attached to that. Wells uh, pulled me and Elmira aside uh, during the filming, and he said, you know, we have to give this, this young man some raison d'etre to be in this film. So in the, in the Wells film, F for Fake, I uh, provide a, a small cameo, and uh, which was ostensibly to explain my my presence there. And Wells said before we shot the footage, he said, um, "Come over here, uh, sit down in this chair, and this is what I want you to say." So I start to to say that I had read about. Elmer in the newspapers uh, in in Minnesota, and I was so fascinated uh, by him and the story that I decided to come to Ibiza and meet Elmer, and uh, voila! Now I had uh, become his bodyguard. You know, and and none of that was true, of course. But when Wells tells you to say something, you say it. <laughs> so. <laughs> So that was that was a little bit of a revisionist uh, yeah, bit of history uh, in connection to that that film. Is that is, that, is it quite an accurate portrayal of his uh, life then? Well, uh, you know, I I liked that uh, less than the the BBC documentary because uh, Wells, of course, had uh, such a uh, gigantic um, presence. In, in the world of film, filmmaking, that he really uh, wanted to insinuate himself into into that uh, that format of uh, being a, a visual conjurer, uh, if you will, 
somewhat uh, of a of a charlatan. You know that was a, a a reputation that followed him around, and he never disavowed it uh, after after his his, his I think it was 1938 his radio uh, uh, program of uh, the H. G. Wells film. I mean the H. G. Wells uh, novel, The War of the Worlds. So Wells was enamored with the the subject of trickery and Elmer being an illusionist, and he thought himself in the same. Uh, category. So the I mean, in the film F for, F for Fake, really uh, kind of relegates uh, Elmer to uh, a mm, a peripheral uh, character, and then Wells uses that uh, that as a uh, as a springboard uh, to talk about himself and his, his own contribution in that regard to you know, chicanery and. And uh, visual illusion. Obviously, dealing with quite a large ego there. Uh, indeed, uh, indeed. But I have to say, when I was there witnessing the uh, the interviews that Wells conducted with Elmer, uh, it was I would say the the two two men were fairly evenly matched. I mean, just uh, had a had a tremendous. Uh, connaissance, uh, knowledge of of art, and, and the the whole the dialogue uh, between them was a uh, a metaphysical <laughs> wonder. Unfortunately, all of the other things that they digressed into because they talked about uh, politics, uh, love, art, <laughs> sex, <laughs> all of that uh, other interesting material, unfortunately, ended up on the editing room floor. And, and lost to history, unfortunately. Well, that is a shame. I, yeah, I, I wonder if I could take you back. If you could just could you just run through how you got to know Elmir and just just run through your sort of history together? Indeed, my uh, encounter with with Elmir was absolutely uh, uh, an instance of of blind luck. Uh, I had been uh, uh, in 1969, summer of 1969. I was taking a break from my second year of college, not knowing at all really what I wanted to do with my life. So, while I was hitchhiking th- through Europe, it, I was on my way to to Morocco when I met a Brit uh, in uh, a small town just south of the uh, French-Spanish border. And uh, we decided to hitchhike together down to Barcelona. Uh, there, he was uh, intending to come to Ibiza because his his mother and stepfather were building a house on the island, and I wanted to continue down to Morocco. He says, "Well, why don't you come to come with me to to Ibiza? It's a, a, a beautiful place, and a lot of times people come and just decide to stay." Well, the that invitation. Uh, meant little, but I decided to uh, you know, put my itinerary on hold a bit and accompany him to Ibiza. Well, I, I had no idea that it was going to be uh, the dramatic right angle turn uh, in my life as it turned out to be. So we arrived uh, on an early Sunday morning, it was the 1st of November 1969, uh, Practically uh, all of the the people down at the port had had disappeared. The summer crowds had vanished, 
and uh, there almost alone was standing uh, Elmir, very dapperly dressed uh, gentleman. And as we disembarked from the ship, uh, we approached him, and I had asked if he, if Elmir spoke English, and he, he smiled broadly, and he said, like they do in Kansas City. <laughs> and I could tell that his accent was a little something other than than Midwestern. So we asked him if he, he could recommend some some cheap uh, pensions, and he indicated uh, it's down that cobbled street you'll you'll find some. I didn't have any luck in finding uh, a room available, but later that evening, after my friend and I were uh, weaving in and out of the portside bars, I ran into Elmer again. And he asked if we had any luck finding place. I told him no. He said, well, I have a small guest room in my home, uh, and you're welcome to to spend the night if you like. And we took him up on that offer. Well, that uh, uh, invitation uh, uh, turned out to be a stretch into a few days, and then my, my friend uh, left to rejoin his family, and... I ended up staying, and it was a short time after that, Almir said to me, he said, well, I'm looking for somebody to help me around the house uh, as an assistant, do some secretarial work for me, work in the garden, clean the pool and such, and do some sundry driving for him. And it was, for me, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. So and I knew at that juncture that... Uh, something I was in the presence of someone extraordinary and he was opening a door to a life that was unknown unimaginable to me so I said yes of course I'd be happy happy to work for you so that was that was the beginning of the relationship now it was interesting he told me that he was an artist but he he made no indication of his storied uh, background. At that time, in 1969, he had already been exposed in the uh, world press, the European uh, press, as the uh, source for uh, a lot of the great uh, fakes uh, in of modern art, but he, he made no mention of that to me. I didn't find that out until a few weeks later when a friend of his uh, brought up a copy of Fake uh, up to La Follette, his his villa, and that was the that was the biography uh, that uh, Clifford Irving had written. Well, Elmer uh, read the read the book, and he ha- immediately had issues with it, and and it was already the beginning of a of a very uh, contested and. Uh, acrimonious relationship be- between him and uh, Irving. I found out, I, so I find find out about uh, uh, El- Elmer's story as being the 20th century's greatest art forger, and I said to myself, oh my God, I'm living with an art forger. I said, how cool is that? So, <laughs> so I, I, I've been asked, I've been asked if, if I had, you know, any uh, reservations about uh, living with a, a, a criminal, and I think you have to understand that I was a, a product of the '60s. It was 
probably the most turbulent uh, decade of the 20th century. And at that time, I was in, in college and, uh, you know, very much against uh, the war in Vietnam and so forth. We, we championed rebels at that time. And that's, so that's how I viewed Elmir, you know, as an iconoclast. And so that really uh, tempered my, my view of him and, and what he had done. So no, I didn't. I didn't have any. I didn't feel any sense of outrage about his his criminal past. At what stage did you start to think that you were having feelings for Elmer that were greater than a professional relationship? Well, I knew I knew Elmer was was gay when when I I met him, and uh, I'm not. So it it uh, it caused uh, a bit of friction uh, at at first but what i discovered was uh, that uh, elmir valued my uh, companionship and the the friendship really blossomed uh, from there and what i found remarkable about him was that here was somebody who just thrived on so on his social life, and so one of one of my duties was to help him out at his his frequent uh, parties and so forth. So he was surrounded, always surrounded by a lot of people, and and oddly, he he really disliked living alone and solitude. So I think I filled that gap uh, for him in in his life. I think we're very well suited uh, for one another because we were, we were both. Caregivers. I wasn't interested in in exploiting him and his his kindness, his humanity, his, his generosity were were absolutely uh, genuine. Uh, there was, you know, I loved the man uh, dearly, and you know he he did so much for me. I and I I I tried to reciprocate and uh, and be there for for him as well. So it was a matter of, of the companionship that I think was important to him. He really disliked being alone. He never appreciated solitude. He couldn't you know, really distinguish between solitude and loneliness. It was, it was pretty much one and the same. With him not, not enjoying his own company too much, he must have organized some fabulous parties, or perhaps you did, for him at La Falaise. I did really whatever he he needed done uh, for uh, for his uh, dinner parties and and his his frequent uh, parties at at the house and it was in that social uh, setting uh, that he was he I I viewed him as something of a of a ringmaster in a in a circus that he would he would orchestrate the these events with. Uh, a lot of attention and, and care, uh, make sure that he would have the right mix of, of people. So I was introduced to you know, a, a wide array of, of uh, friends and acquaintances that, uh, on the island, uh, many of whom were, were artists, uh, people in the, in the theater, because there was, there, was a, there was a fairly large foreign contingent uh, on the island as there as there is today, so it was. It was just an absolutely uh, fascinating and, and compelling atmosphere that he 
that he created at his home. And yeah. I was for, fortunate enough to be a part of it. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask you about the uh, about the, the the international scene or the, the the kind of people that you came across in Adisa in those years. Were there, were there a lot of um, Europeans and Americans there, uh, artists, writers, those kind of people? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It was a very very creative uh, uh, lot, uh, and 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 a very diverse lot. There was. Uh, I, I was trying to discern, uh, you know, actually what the what the formula was for Elmir when he extended his uh, invitations. You know, he he was in this in this feat. He he loved surrounding himself with beautiful people. So, you know, if you were uh, attractive, you know, he would invite you to the party. Uh, and he and he was. Uh, I thought when I first met him, I thought he was a huge snob because he would always uh, talk about his friends, you know, who were titled and, and it was the, uh, the, the Duc de Roquefort or the Comtesse de Camembert, it seemed to me, uh, you know, so I thought it was just a, an incredible snob, but it, it, what I discovered that it really wasn't that. Uh, it was, it was his, his connection to people that was important to him, uh, and that was really uh, his his raison d'etre. I just discovered sometime later, twigged to the fact sometime later that you know all of the name dropping it wasn't meant to impress. It was that his connection to people and the world was seen through that lens, very personal friendships and so forth that he, that he had with with others. So, and, and actually, that really was was where his true passion was 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 his sense of humanity and his sense of connectedness to to others. In my view, it really wasn't his his art. You know, when you think that for artists, uh, that is really where what makes their heart beat faster. But it wasn't that case for Elmir. I think I think he regarded his art as his craft. Yes, he was he was a consummate artist, very talented in, uh, in that regard. But it was it was really his his love for people. And that's what really generated uh, his interest on on a daily basis, connecting himself to other people. As a matter of fact, I'm going to have. Uh, I'm now this coming uh, year in 2020. I'm going to have an exhibition of his portraiture. It'll be the first uh, exhibition of that kind of his art uh, ever. And I fortunately inherited uh, a trove of of his sketchbooks and so forth. And so a lot of it is just peopled with uh, portraits of of people that he he knew. So I'm looking forward to that that exhibition. Would you bring that bring the exhibition to Ibiza? Oh yeah, so uh, absolutely. I, I you know what I think uh, I, I think it I can't think of anything uh, more appropriate than to have a, an exhibition of his of his work because a, a lot of a lot of these uh, portraits uh, were of, of of his friends on the island, and it it was really mm, his portraiture. That was ever present in his in his artwork, uh, 
you know, behind the scenes. Even in the, the days of uh, the halcyon days of his fakery, um, he consistently uh, did drawings and uh, paintings, uh, portraits of, of, of his friends and, and people he knew. And I think that's one of the reasons that it, it, was a, uh, it may have been, in some occasions, uh, a bit hard for him to hide the fact that he was an artist because he w- would sometimes go down to the port and draw uh, uh, photos of, of uh, fishermen or uh, people at the sidewalk cafes. So there's a lot of uh, examples of that uh, in the upcoming exhibition. I'd love to have an exhibition of his work in Ibiza. For that, perhaps that can uh, be arranged. You know, there's you know cost and expenditure and you know, involved in in mounting an exhibition. And yes, uh, I'd love to ha- embark on that dialogue. Can you just just tell me how many years you uh, were in Ibiza with him? Tell me the history of of your time here. I ended up living with Helmer uh, for for uh, about seven years until his death in uh, in late 1976. You know, it was, of course, the I think the most important chapter uh, in in my life. And his his death was, I think, the the biggest emotional uh, crushing blow in in my life. You know, he he put such an in, indelible imprint on my life, uh, fashioning and his my exposure to him really fashioned the the person that I am I am today. I think it's not unusual for a, a lot of people to find uh, a mentor or s- someone that that really uh, does you know put a, a mark, a leaving a, a mark on their on their lives and. I was f- fortunate enough to uh, to meet Elmer. He remains uh, the the most re- remarkable human being that I've ever encountered. And yeah. through him, I I met I met some amazing people as well. You know, there was let's see, yeah, uh, it wasn't actually until about I think 2000, 2007 that I I began to collect my my notes and souvenirs and and I started to uh, write my account of my life with him uh, which turned out to be I worked on it for five years it's uh, called the Forge's Apprentice and it was a it was an interesting time working on the on the book because it uh, it allowed me to to think back and uh, collect a lot of the the most uh, in significant uh, souvenirs from my uh, life experience with him. So towards the end of, of his life, did, did things change in terms of him? Did he appear to be getting stressed about the, the, the fact that he was being exposed as a, as a forger and that the police were trying to extradite him to France? The, the scandal uh, broke Initially in 19, 1967, that was about two years before before I I met him. His world had had changed because prior to that he was he was trying to uh, live as uh, uh, as discreetly as possible to be able to to do his his fakery. He'd always lived under that banner of of being the world's greatest art forger. Uh, 
and it was you know he struggled he struggled to to get the recognition that he thought he deserved as an as an artist in in his own right but all of that while uh, uh, living in Ibiza he had he lived an uneasy existence because uh, he never seemed to know if there was going to suddenly be a knock on his door from Interpol or so forth uh, from from the authorities he had never fully endured the the fallout uh, from his uh, criminal past as one might expect and the only reason uh, that it it really uh, his his past caught up to him was because of his former dealer uh, Fernand Legro, who, in my estimation, uh, was an out-and-out sociopath, and uh, he stalked him. Uh, Legro was responsible for orchestrating, uh, I believe, uh, three extradition uh, requests, and I think it was uh, I think it was he who uh, really worked with the with Interpol and the French government to try to get Almir uh, extradited. So this this threat uh, was always a Damocles sword uh, precariously hanging uh, over Elmer. He never really felt uh, secure in his position his and feared for his uh, safety and it, so it was it was on the third extradition attempt in 1976 uh, uh, in the in December of 1976 uh, that a tribunal in Mallorca had uh, agreed that they had to extradite Elmir uh, to France under the charges that, again, I believe were uh, pretty much orchestrated by his dealer, Fernand Legros. And it was, it was insane because in the charges against Elmir that Legros actually incriminated himself. That was an indication of how obsessed he was with with Elmira's uh, destruction. And when the decision from the tribunal uh, came down on the the 11th of December, 1976, when he found out that he was going to be extradited, and that's when he decided to take his own life, rather than to face uh, being dragged off uh, in shackles to some French prison. And at that time, uh, prior to that, uh, Elmir, uh, I was with Elmir uh, when a, a former associate of Legros came to Elmir's house in Ibiza, and he told him that uh, Legros had a contract out on him, and that if Elmir ever went to a, a uh, ended up in jail in France, that he would be murdered. So it was it was the specter of this this kind of n end of life scenario that he uh, he couldn't abide and that's why he decided to take his own life and are you happy to to tell me or able to to tell me what happened i mean did were you in the house at the time uh yes i i was uh as a matter of fact there was a there was a close friend friend of ours uh evelyn archer uh who is german she was had a house on the island and she knew two of the judges uh, uh, in the tribunal of the trial in in Mallorca. And Evelyn said, I will call them 
and uh, find out what the decision is. So she did that, and I had to drive to a plaza church in, in San Jose, and make, made the, I made the call to Evelyn. I said, uh, Evelyn, this is Mark, and she immediately started crying, and she said, I, I found out that they were going to extradite him. So I, uh, being the bearer of bad tidings, had to drive back to the house and give Elmir the, the sad news. I didn't. I didn't know that uh, Elmir has had been planning uh, a, a suicide. Uh, there, there were some noises, I think, made in that regard. But I, at that time, was in total denial. I didn't believe it would be possible uh, for the extradition demand to succeed. It had failed twice before. And uh, so it 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 took me by a total surprise. So Elmir uh, that morning he d- dismissed his his house maid his cleaner that was in the home, and he then went upstairs and took an, uh, an overdose of sleeping pills and cognac. I was. I was torn as to as to what to do. I knew exactly what his wishes were, and at the same time, I had this tremendous impulse to to save him. And after after a couple hours, I decided to drive into Ibiza and, and tell a very close friend of ours. And uh, she said, "Well, we have to we have to go back to the house and try to uh, rescue him," uh, which is what we did. We put him in the car and we were driving him back to the clinic in in Ibiza town and he died en route to the hospital. For me, it was the most tragic event in my life. Well, thank you for... um, I mean, I'm quite surprised that you were able to articulate it because obviously, you know, it's still alive, very much alive in your your mind that that day well you know i think any anyone who experiences uh the uh, the death of of a loved one can it's hard to uh, you know you end up with the emotional scar tissue forever you know when they they say time heals all that's i don't think that's true i think the best thing we can do is to try to uh, recover uh, somewhat, but uh, the the uh, emotional impact of of that is uh, indelible. Could, could you describe what you tell me has has given you in your in your life you know, since, since his death? What, what have you taken from Elmir through through the rest of your life? Well, I still live uh, in in his in his shadow. Uh, as I say, the, the person that I am today is uh, was largely molded and, and formulated um, in uh, by virtue of his his presence. I value uh, friendship as highly as as he did, and and many times in the in the way I just carry myself in my day to day activities, I am ever conscious of of the. The, the impact that he uh, that he made on me. I have dinner parties and friends. We sit around 
his uh, Spanish Renaissance uh, dining room, you know, mahogany dining room table. And I, I brought, so I brought a lot of these things back uh, to the States with me after uh, Elmer's death. So I have, <laughs> I have some of the furniture, the artifacts, the artwork. My, my home is absolutely tapestried uh, with his uh, artwork. So his presence is, is still profoundly felt every day. Well, I, I sort of feel like I've got to know him these last few weeks through talking to you and watching that documentary as well. I, I, I can feel that he, he had a huge personality and obviously was a, a, great, a great person to be, to be with. Well, you said that you uh, wanted to discuss the, the fake Elmir phenomenon. Yes, yes. I I would like I would just like like to address that and, and because it's uh, it's on the on the tail end of you know this this feeling this uh, Elmir's ever presence uh, in in my home uh, he made me his uh, sole heir and so I today I'm I manage his his estate his art collection uh, organize uh, curate exhibitions and and lecture on him and uh, art forgery. Uh, there's no shortage of irony in life. And, and for Elmer's, in Elmer's saga, I think one of the most outstanding ironies uh, is that is something that neither he nor I ever entertained. At one point, I re recall in Ibiza, someone said jokingly, he said, well, what are you going to do about all of the fake Elmer's that are going to follow you? And after a moment of, of stunned silence, we both laughed because we thought the prospect was so improbable that it was just simply inconceivable. But nevertheless, today, I find myself policing online auction sites uh, and the, the spate of uh, fake Elmer's Bogut's Elmir's, uh, is overwhelming. Because after his death in 1976, a cottage industry uh, cropped up of churning out these, these fake Elmir's. I'm in the improbable <laughs> position of having to police his, uh, his oeuvre. Uh, certainly I, something I, I never entertained, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I'm, I'm forced to do that. Now, uh, in that regard, uh, I have to say that my my attitudes towards uh, fakery and so forth have have evolved since uh, my years with Elmir. I understand, and I can't uh, dispute one of the problems of fakery is that it distorts the historical uh, record of artists' work. This is no. This is what I'm going through, uh, of having to uh, separate the, you know, the wheat and the chaff, uh, with all of these bogus Elmir's. So I understand, you know, for law and order enthusiasts, the problems that they have with with Elmir and and art forgery in general. Another reason why I couldn't personally condemn uh, Elmir uh, and feel outraged for for his life of crime was that in uh, 19, 
67, uh, over 50 years ago, the, the art world elected to turn a blind eye to what could have been uh, the uh, most important cautionary tale about how the art world operates. And that's ex- precisely what Elmer uh, pointed out uh, with uh, his, his success uh, and illicit career. So basically, business practices uh, have, haven't changed at all. The, the art world still operates in much of the same way as the regular business uh, world, and it's, it has to do with, with uh, profit motive. So they could have learned uh, a number of lessons on how to, to change policies, practices uh, in the art world, but they have elected to do that, and, it's, and the situation has gotten even even worse since then. With this push that we have in the United States and elsewhere, uh, the free market slaves insist, uh, always in one of their favorite mantras is let the market decide. Well, the problem with that and this push for deregulation, I've always thought of deregulation as code for unaccountability. And, and the, the first victim of deregulation is consumer protection. Consumers are not being protected in the art market from this proliferation of fakes and forgeries today. Um, can, can you tell me how you would, how you would change it? Uh, the first place uh, would, be, would be this. The, uh, anyone who is uh, familiar with how auction houses operate, all they need to do is uh, take a look at the terms and conditions of sales. Uh, auction houses go out of their way to uh, shed any kind of responsibility for selling uh, forgeries and, and fakes. They say it is that is an issue. Uh, the issue of authenticity is an issue between the buyer and the seller. They, as middlemen, hold themselves uh, harmless. In, in that regard, in the transactions. So if they were serious uh, about being concerned or attentive to consumer protection, uh, they would be much better at their due diligence when it comes to establishing uh, uh, authenticity of works of art. One of the biggest travesties that we've, we've seen in, in, recent, uh, in the recent past is the uh, newly ordained uh, Salvatore Mundi attributed to Leonardo. That painting, uh, by no stretch of the imagination, is uh, universally embraced as an uh, authentic uh, Leonardo. But why did it sell for $450 million uh, at auction? Is because the marketplace wanted that, that piece to be considered authentic. Uh, I think it's a travesty. Actually, you know, the painting was was so overworked, uh, overpainted, that even if it had been by Leonardo, the original touches or the, his degree of participation in its creation were uh, probably negligible. I mean, I'm just voicing an opinion that is no means by no means an isolated point of view. Correcting the po- uh, the practices of auction houses would be a good. St- step in the, in the right direction of increasing consumer protection, you know, which, is, which they're not about to do. Why? Because the free market slaves believe that 
uh, any kind of regulation uh, is an, an interference and an obstacle to free enterprise. So this is another reason why I, I can't I can't really you know think that uh, that Elmer was so bad uh, at at his perpetrating his art crimes. Then if they were if the art market were serious, then take those those uh, preemptive measures to improve consumer protection. That's what they need to do. Don't don't create an atmosphere where the loopholes are so large that uh, fakes and, and forgeries so and and stolen art, of course, uh, stolen looted antiquities and so forth, filter into the the marketplace so easily. Yeah, he he was just um, taking advantage of the system as as it was and, and hadn't been improved at that time, wasn't it? There was an overwhelming demand for those kind of pictures. Uh, uh, he was able to succeed uh, in his illicit career because he, it was an, he wasn't a copyist. He's all, he always denied being a copyist, and he didn't do that. Yeah. And that's why his, his pastiches of the modern masters were uh, slid so easily uh, into their, their oeuvres. Uh, he, Elmer often pointed out to me in, in my, my private art history lessons with him, he said artists would often find, often find a subject that they would like, and they would repeat it over and over and over again. What he would do then is a variation on that theme. Uh, and because uh, of his technical virtuosity, painterly skills, uh, he was uh, able to succeed in, in doing uh, what he did for, for so long. You have to make a distinction between, you know, between forgeries. You know, he was never, never a copyist. A lot of the paintings that claim to be Elmer's that I find uh, in online auction sites are direct uh, copies of existing works. And none of those uh, are by Elmer. Thank you very much for, for sharing um, your memories and thoughts. What I find interesting is that uh, Elmer still casts a long shadow. And uh, the interesting thing for me, uh, Will, uh, is that you know, all of the people, the throngs that showed up for Elmer's uh, funeral and so forth, it wasn't because they were uh, you know, paying a tribute to a celebrity. It was because, again, because of his connections to people. He had uh, genuine uh, friendships, and uh, it was they were mourning the loss of not of his his fame or infamy, uh, but because of his the gravitational pull of his humanity, and that's one of the, again that's one of the ironies that I think the the public by and large may can't can't appreciate. Uh, for many, they can't overcome the stain of his criminality, and that that permanently alters their their viewpoint but for me having uh, lived with him and known him so well uh, personally it was the it was the gravitational pull of his personality and humanity and that's why he had had the friends that he had <clears throat> 
song was recorded in San Jose in the 1950s in Ibiza. It's called Bon Amor Jo et Venk Aver, which roughly translates as Good Love, I'll Come See You. It's part of the Alan Lomax collection at the American Folklife Centre in the Library of Congress. It's used courtesy of the Association for Cultural Equity. Vas a las tres, aparece el galfo, ve. No tengas poca 